grace-based relationships, nothing you do, nothing you say, no matter how you treat me, I love you, care for you, forgive you unconditionally, period. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because uh, the church at Corinth was not unified. Uh, There was division in the church. There were denominational lines being drawn. Uh, Some people considered themselves to be more intelligent than others. Uh, There were lines being drawn based on who followed Paul's teaching and Apollos' teaching and who claimed to be strict biblicists to to be about Christ alone. There were denominational lines being drawn and Paul wrote the church at Corinth admonishing the local church not to draw these dividing lines, to admonish the church toward unity and And he's already taught us leading up to chapter seven, that unity comes by maturity in the faith, by sitting at Jesus's feet, learning the deep things of the faith, learning the deep things of the gospel. Unity comes by maturity in the faith. And he has also taught us that as we live with him, following his teaching, sitting at his feet and learning from him, he is completing the good work that he started in each of us, uh, bringing us all to completion through a process we call sanctification. And that happens, as we've learned through 1 Corinthians, in the, the gathering of the local church. Paul defined ecclesia church as the local gathering of believers, as a local gathering in which you take on a set of beliefs and take on a name, the name of the community where you are gathering, associating with people. And he agrees with the author of Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, not to neglect the gathering of believers, devotion to a body of believers, because that is where you are sanctified. And when we neglect that, we are not encouraged in life and we are not admonished like we need to be admonished and we are not built up. We are not we are not completed according to to God's design for that work of sanctification in our lives. Leading up to this point, within chapter 7, Paul has talked an awful lot about marriage, and if you remember those awkward sermons, great. I'm not going to rehash some of that here. But today he he continues. Verse 17 in chapter 7, Paul wrote, Only as the Lord assigned each one, referring to marriage or singleness or even being married to an unbelieving partner, only as the Lord assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, not only the local church at Corinth, but in all the churches there, admonishing the people toward contentment in their relationships. Paul, he continues talking about contentment. And contentment is... Okay, everything in the Bible is difficult to talk about. Contentment is one of the most difficult of everything in Scripture because not many people in the world today 
no contentment. Not many people in the world today know the sort of humility that brings about contentment. Because not many people really understand God's sovereignty or God's providence or His goodness. If we understood those things, we, we would never complain about the circumstances of our lives. And we would never be angry and we would never... And we would never hate, and we would always forgive, and we would always love, and we would never hold a grudge. We would always, we would always live sacrificially rather than trying to promote ourselves. And Paul gets at all these ideas in verses 18 through 24, and he also gets at, um, wait, is it surprising to you that the Bible is actually relevant? Because this, the woke stuff that we see in society today. And the revival of the liberation gospel we see in society today, like Paul talks about that explicitly here, like it's not some new thing. And so we'll actually see what the Bible has to say about that as well. This is not going to be easy to hear. It was not easy for me to study and walk through. It is humbling. Verse 18, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He has not to become uncircumcised. As if that were possible, right? Has anyone be called, been called an uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. They're almost repeating verse 17. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to also become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, He who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. They're repeating his admonition a third time. This seems to be important if Paul feels a need to make this particular point three times in in one section of his letter to the church at Corinth, like the church at Corinth had a, had a problem being content. And I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, maybe we all have a problem being content with the circumstances in life, being content in our relationships and being content in our, in our religion We'll walk through these verses briefly because these aren't that difficult to exposit, but the application is pretty hard hitting. Verse 18 Was any man called to Christ, to salvation, when he was already circumcised? Now, if you know what circumcision is, great. Okay? If you don't know what circumcision is, I will let you go and learn that on your own. Just be very careful when you type that into Google. Okay? To put it briefly and very generically, 
circumcision was a removal of a certain part of the flesh. And it was a sign given to the Jewish people to signify that they are God's covenant community. Circumcision is what designated Jew from not Jew, Jew from Gentile. And if somebody was circumcised, part of the Jewish community, they were known as God's covenant community, according to God's promise to Abraham. Now keep in mind, the promise came first, and then the sign of the promise. The promise is unconditional. And then only after the promise is received was the command given. So law comes after faith. And faith precedes works. And we remember that every time we see circumcision listed anywhere in the Bible. But Paul, he, he gets a little, I don't know, humorous here, ironic. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. You can't put that piece of flesh back on, right? It doesn't benefit a Jew to become a Gentile in order to come to Christ. That's not a requirement for Jews. Jews can come to Christ without becoming Gentiles, right? If you were called while a Jew, if you were called and you're part of the circumcision... Remain where you are. Remain Jewish. That is perfectly acceptable. But Paul also gives the opposite formulation. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? While a Gentile, he is not to be circumcised. You don't have to become a Jew in order to come to Christ. Now at this time, while Paul is writing his epistles, the apostles are dealing with a certain group of people known as the Judaizers who did teach that someone must become Jewish, be circumcised in order to become Christian, in order to trust in the Jewish Messiah. Paul here is very clear. No, that's not the case. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to keep the ceremonial law that is represented in circumcision. You can come directly to Christ. And then in verse 19, circumcision is... Paul's a Jew. Yet he says, Paul is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was being trained to sit on Sanhedrin, the Jewish law court. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. But wait, Paul, isn't circumcision commanded by God? Mm. Okay. Here's what I think Paul is getting at here. I think he's getting at outward religiosity versus inward relationship with, with God the Father. Circumcision is a ceremonial law, a ritual law. It's a sign, a mark. It's not moral law, which is inward. Moral law is inward. Ritual law is outward. And we see both types of laws in the Old Testament. Both types of laws binding for the Jewish nation. But when it comes to the moral law, that is binding for every single person. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, talking about the moral law, was correcting this outward religiosity of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he made six particular corrections there in his Sermon on the Mount. But here's what it boils down to. You are so focused on outward appearance. And you are so focused on what things seem to be according to your own perception. That you are missing what matters. 
And that is the regeneration of the heart. And the law of God not being written in our actions, but on our hearts. Such that we read the law of God and it's not a burden for us to say, I desire that and I love that and I want to work toward that. You want to, you want to distinguish false Christianity from true Christianity. This is how you distinguish the two. False Christianity, a false church, a false prophet will preach. You must do this and this and this and this in order to be saved. You must look a certain way and talk a certain way and breathe a certain way in order to attain blessings from God. So this identifies, reveals, uncovers, unveils the, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel as a false gospel because it is entirely works-based. Put your money in the slot machine and pull the lever and see what God gives you. This excludes any gospel that says you're not getting any blessings because you're not praying enough. Our prayers don't earn the grace of God. I seem to read in Scripture that we don't know how to pray. Since we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. I seem to read in the passage about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus instructing people, no, don't go pray more in front of people. It's not going to gain you anything. Don't babble like the heathens. God knows what you need. Go into your closet and just tell God your heart. Nobody's impressed by long prayers. They just think you're being super Christian and they don't want anything to do with you, right? You can't win God or earn God by anything you do. And I know people who break their backs to serve in the church. Hopefully not here. But I have known elsewhere people who break their backs to serve in the church and think, think that wins something with God. No, it does not. God is the sovereign here, not us. He is king, not us. He is the one who gives. We are not the ones who earn. The Corinthians didn't seem to understand this. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God, and the only way we can really keep the commandment. Have you ever tried by your own muster to keep the commandments of God? How successful are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I can't do that by my own strength. No, the law has to be written on our hearts. That only happens by grace and by God's choosing. And then Paul talking about this, this contentment of religion says something crazy like each man must remain in that condition which he was called. Now wait, Paul. This is not the way the world does religion. The world does religion by telling you you must be better. The world does religion by saying, now, now wait a minute, if your numbers aren't going up, you are a failure. The world does religion by using things in the Bible that God has instructed us to do 
in order to make themselves look pious and to look good and to build their own kingdoms. And I, I know that and I can recognize that because it was me starting out. I was guilty of not being content in life and ministry with anything. And so I sought to be productive and became a workaholic. Maybe remember that. That was hell in our lives, wasn't it? I became a workaholic and a ministryaholic. It's not good for the soul. And all you do is push people away and make enemies no matter no matter how many people start watching your stuff or reading or attending. It's because of that I I don't have many close friends from from my teens and early twenties. I just don't. Because I wasn't afraid to walk on people to get done what I thought needed to be done. Malcontent is a dragon that you cannot fight. And malcontent is one of the worst sins. And every single person must overcome malcontent. Because malcontent is a condition of the depraved human mind and human heart. We think the grass is always greener on the other side. When we get there, and it's not until we get there we see all the all the weeds and the dead grass and wish we could go back. Malcontent is a beast, a dragon. This is why Paul admonishes the church. And remember, he's admonishing the church toward unity through maturity. Like the only way you can be unified is through maturity. The only way you can be mature, apparently, is by learning contentment in life. And contentment is humility of circumstance. That's how I'll define contentment. Humility of circumstance. Then we get to verse 21, and Paul has talked about the marriage relationship, being content whether you are married or single or married to an unbeliever, being content in that. He just talked about religious contentment, and and now he, he broadens the scope even more. And this is something our biblical teaching, our current society, our current culture just just mocks. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Now he does say here, if you are able to also become free, rather do that. So if there's the opportunity for a slave to become free... He can do that. So it is possible to change the circumstances of our lives without sinning. But if our main goal is to change the circumstances of our lives, that's, that's, that's a mockery of God's providence. If He's the one, really, who, who works all things together. Are we not mocking Him every time we complain 
about the circumstances of our lives that He has so graciously worked together for His glory and for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Every, every complaint, and He has the patience to, to love us anyway. How good is our God? Do not worry about it. If you don't have the opportunity to become free, don't worry about it. Your, your calling is higher now. You live by a different standard now. This puts to rest anything in the church that is woke. And if you don't know what woke means, it's a revival of the liberation gospel. And the liberation gospel seeks to liberate people from their circumstances rather than from their sin. And God is interested in our liberation from sin, which runs much deeper than any circumstance we could possibly, possibly be trapped in in this life on this earth. And so he says, don't worry about your circumstances. I'm freeing you from something much greater. Look at verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's Freedman. Now Paul is playing on words here. And likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Brothers and sisters, are we free in Christ? Yes. Are we also slaves to Christ? Yes. So in Christ, all people are equal, whether slave or free, no matter circumstances, and no matter skin color, and no matter titles and no matter intelligence no matter what we give our time to no matter how much we've done all people are equal at the foot of the cross and whereas the new liberation gospel the woke gospel gets at equity the real gospel gets at equality and and these two things the they cannot be put together. Well, those who teach that equity is correct and right and godly, here's what they teach. Here's, here's the woke gospel in a nutshell. Let me take verses like Revelation chapter 7, I think verse 5. Now, all nations and tribes and tongues... They will be present in heaven and they will all be singing before God Almighty. This is true. But the woke interpretation is not. The proponents of the new liberation gospel take verses like that in Scripture and appropriate them to say every single church absolutely has to reflect such a reality. Such that we should look out in an auditorium in a worship service and see just as many black people and white people, yellow people, red people. Just as many. We live in a community where that's not even possible. So we have no choice but to live in sin according to the woke gospel. That's equity. That's why universities like Harvard are getting into trouble with the law. 
because they were graduating too many Asian students. It wasn't equitous. And it is why the United States government is withdrawing funding from several Christian ministries because they're not equitous. Do we not understand that sort of gospel is racist and sexist and wrong? And here Christ gives us something better through the Apostle Paul. Equality. All people are equal under the cross. And your skin color, your tradition, your culture is very real and is respectable and probably will not be deleted, all right? That's not God's way of doing things, isn't canceling it. God, God doesn't seem to do that. People do that. But Paul here says, important, but not a measure of your worth. No, the measure of your worth is simply whether or not you are in Christ and you have repented of your sins and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. All free men are slaves to Christ. All slaves are free in Christ. You were bought with a price. He says in verse 23, bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. Well, this is interesting because you just said that we should be content. And now you're saying don't become slaves. So I see how this could be misappropriated too, but I think Paul is playing on words again. Paul really likes to, to play on words. There's a rhetorical element. Paul is a Hellenistic philosopher as well as a Jew, so he can write to both Jews and to Gentiles using uh, the argumentation of the time. So I, I really appreciate this. I, I love philosophy. So I, I really love what Paul is doing here. Do not become slaves of men. What does it mean to become a slave of Man, well, in verse 23, it means taking on such a mentality that the world has, such that you are given to a form of the liberation gospel rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ, such that you are trying to free yourself from your circumstances rather than from sin. Don't become a slave to that ideology. Somebody may have the authority to tell you what to do. But nobody has control of your mind, your ideology, your beliefs. And if Christ calls us all to be servants and slaves anyway, then the true gospel actually frees us to be servants rather than take on the entitlement mentality of the world and to serve others and love others Unconditionally, no matter what they do to us or say about us. That is the Christian's lifestyle. Even when we disagree with something or someone politically, we don't have to hate them or hold grudges or speak ill of them. Instead, we can reason. We don't have to give ourselves over to, to name-calling. I am sickened by the amount of name-calling I, I hear from professing Christians when it comes to politics these days. And the absolute slander and malice I see thrown all over Facebook. And it's, I'm sickened by that because that is not the way of Christ. 
Christ did not say of Caesar, what an ignorant, foolish, dumb person. At least not that we have recorded. Instead he said crazy things. Show me a show me a denarius. Whose image is that? Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. Je- Jesus' way of teaching was so different, it, it wouldn't fit any of our political systems today. In fact, every worldly system is, is hellish when compared to the Bible. But that doesn't mean grudges and, and name-calling from the community of faith. No, we are called to a higher standard, loved unconditionally, forgiven by God. How can anyone who is forgiven by God harbor any hatefulness or anger in their hearts whatsoever? If we harbor that, we show more about our disbelief than our belief you were bought with a price. Do not be slaves of men. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. No, you do not have the right over your own body. It was created by God and bought by Christ. Brethren, verse 24, each one is to remain with God in that condition which he was called there. Paul, again, calling the church to contentment in life. Every arena of life. In in this section of Scripture, Paul has given us three branches of contentment for the Christian life. Branch number one is relational contentment. Branch number two is religious contentment. Branch number three is socioeconomic contentment. Do you know what it means to be content in your relationships? None of us do fully, by the way. Well, Paul got at singleness and marriage in the previous passage. There's no, no such thing as a sincere, genuine, merit-based relationship. And not even unbelief constitutes a valid reason for divorce, according to Paul. And even singles being content in their singleness, able to love others without lusting. That's commanded here in chapter 7. We have two ways to pursue relationships, merit-based relationships or grace-based relationships. And merit-based relationships, that's the world's way of doing relationships. If you don't benefit me, If I can't use you to succeed, if I don't look better by being around you, if you say anything to me that I don't like, I want nothing to do with you. Merit-based relationships. But in Christ, grace-based relationships. How many times have we each of us sinned against God and He comes and retrieves us anyway. And Jesus tells the, the story about the, the 99 sheep who stayed in, in the pen and the one who runs off. 
the shepherd does what? He goes and gets his lost man. He goes and retrieves them, makes every effort to go and to bring him back and to reconcile. Grace-based relationships, nothing you do, nothing you say. No matter how you treat me, I love you, care for you, forgive you unconditionally, period. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be content in our relationships. And Paul, he says that about marriage. It applies to every relationship. Marriage, after all, is the the climax of human relationships. And our, our marriages teach us how to relate to others, though different. The concepts we learn in marriage and the sanctifying process we go through in marriage, that applies to every relationship. Like Almost like God did that on purpose. Almost. No, He did do that on purpose. Right? Everything He does, He has a purpose for it. Then we see crazy instructions in Scripture. I mentioned Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 earlier. Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. But as you see the day drawing near, gather together all the more so that you might encourage one another, admonish one another, stimulate one another on to love and good deeds. Without these elements, we are not the church. And the author of Hebrews, the preacher, so don't neglect that. And then in First John, things get a little more serious. First John chapter 1, verse 7, and First John chapter 2, verses 4, 9, 11, 18, and 19. And John, the elder of the church at Ephesus, he starts talking about those who left the church. And the reason they left the church is because they cared more about more about their own ministries than about the fellowship of the saints. He calls them antichrists. He says they don't know Christ. They're not saved. They're going to hell. They're not of us. And evidence that they're not of us is because they they abandoned the fellowship. It's evidence according to 1 John. Now make no mistake, going to church does not save any person. Going to church is not required for salvation. I have to make that very clear, right? But if we are in Christ, we are a part of Christ's body, and we can't break from that. It's impossible if we are really in Christ, according to John's epistle. Anyway, And the purpose God has for relationships on this earth is sanctification. And we can build shallow relationships all we want. Gather people around us who tell us only what we want to hear and neglect those who who don't satisfy our own sensibilities. Or we can do what's good for us and be committed to a local body of believers where everybody is led by the Spirit 
And everybody seeks to admonish and everybody seeks to encourage. All the more as we see the day drawing near. That is contentment. And if we are not content, we will never be willing. We'll never be willing to be sanctified relationally. Two, religious contentment. The Judaizers were concerned about outward appearance. Christ is not concerned about outward appearance, whether circumcision or anything else. Tattoos are the kind of clothes you wear, or outward, mere outward actions, right? In fact, Christ even taught this as well. It's not what goes into the body that defiles a person. It's what comes out from the heart. Worldly religion depends on outward appearance, equity, reputation, the way you look, the way you present yourself, your performance at work. That's the worldly way of doing things, is it not? Jesus, Jesus condemned the Pharisees to hell for glorifying their own ministry and their own status and their own reputation and their own results. Do you realize that? In fact, can we just read this? Matthew chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. They, Jesus here talking about the Pharisees, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They they really like to be honored. They love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. This is their way of doing things. Now you look at verse 15 and following, you can see where he's condemning them. Woe to them. They are going to hell and leading people to hell with them. In fact, Jesus condemns them for idolaterizing evangelism, idolaterizing their, their ministries, their proselytization, making disciples. Now, it is good to make disciples. In fact, I think Jesus commanded us to go make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's something that comes before that, a higher priority, sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from Him. Read that in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus invites us to come sit at His feet, to learn from Him. And without that priority, we we cannot go make disciples. Instead, we're making proselytes who follow us into the mouth of hell. That's Jesus' point here about the Pharisees in chapter 23. And in verses 8 through 12, he, he tells his disciples to be different. But you do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Don't exalt yourself by making much of any title you have on this earth. That's pharisaical. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Don't be a a John MacArthurite, or a Vodibachamite, or a Paulite, or an Apollosite. Be a Christian. Glean from those men for sure. But be a Christian. 
You only have one Father, He who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, that is Christ. How many people today in the church saying, I have a right to preach. I have a right to be an elder. I have a right to have my own ministry. That is not godly. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. We are all servants. But the greatest, and this is how Jesus finishes, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Religious contentment. We see relational contentment, religious contentment. Number three is socio-economic contentment. Worldly malcontent produces philosophies like critical race theory and intersectionality. It produces the entitlement of our day and forces us to measure one another based on our equity rather than our intrinsic worth in Christ. It is racist and it is sexist, though it is called by something different. And though people claim it seeks to alleviate the world of those things, it actually causes those things with more severity. The liberation gospel seeks to liberate people from their circumstances rather than their sin. And as a result, people are forced to live in sin because they are malcontent, which is a mockery of God's sovereignty and providence and goodness as he works together the circumstances of our lives. This is the difference between complaining and celebrating. Christians are the single true Christians. The single group on earth that has the most reason to celebrate. We celebrate because the Holy Spirit does chastise us to make us better. To complete us. Because we have family, church family, that cares enough about us to come to us and in good Christian fashion admonish us to the best of their ability for our good. We have reason to celebrate because of that. We have reason to celebrate because we are saved and we are, I say heaven bound, really new earth bound, right? A renewed creation. We have reason to celebrate because God doesn't hold any of our sins against us. And because even when we recognize sins in one another, we we come to one another and we say, hey, I'm a little concerned about this. I love you. Yeah. What celebration is that? The world doesn't know that. And sometimes people plug into a healthy church. And this happened to me. In fact, it happened to me here at the church at Sunsites not too long ago. Okay? And somebody came to me. And they were like, hey, Pastor Brother Andrew Mann, Reverend. Not in those exact words. I'm a little concerned about something you are doing. And I did not even realize I had so many walls built up around my heart because I was disenchanted with the church. Because before, when people used that sort of language, they meant ill. They didn't mean to build me up, but to tear me down. And that's the way I took it. 
And I turned to my wife and I said, oh no, this is happening again. And I started cutting people off immediately. That's what happens, isn't it, when we have walls built up and hearts of stone. And the Holy Spirit, I was, I was, a, I was playing music. <laughs> there were a bunch of people around, and that's when the Holy Spirit decided to, uh, to bring me to my knees. Okay, it's a little embarrassing, yeah. But he brought me to my knees and showed me that, hey, there are people who care about you. There are people who want to see you free from your sin and your anger and your own hatred. And that's why, that's why I can recognize it, because that was me. And just to speak to the church at Sunsites, those listening online, go ahead and pause it. No. <laughs> just to speak to us. Our community is full of people with stony hearts, walls built up. Our ministry here needs to be a ministry of, yes, addressing sin, but not leaving it there, not condemning people. but addressing sin according to the Word of God and pleading people to come to the foot of the cross and receive forgiveness and then never holding it against them again. Done. It's finished. There are not many like that. There are some. Not many. That's what it means to trust in the grace of God and the sovereignty of God and to actually believe He forgives people. Yeah? So instead of complaining, celebrating God's goodness. Instead of complaining, celebrating God's goodness. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the unity of the church, the division of the church. What causes division? Well, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, malcontent here in this passage. In fact, in this section that we've been in for a few weeks now. James also talks about division in the church. Something we need to be reminded of often. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your sensibilities, your lusts, your desires that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Some people may be literally, hopefully not in here, (laughs) but definitely metaphorically. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why? Malcontent. Lack of Christian humility. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures, your desires, your lusts. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? What is friendship with the world? According to James, here friendship is with the world is selfishness, so that you may spend what you have on your pleasures, your desires. Friendship with the world is being ruled by our pleasures, our desires, our sensibilities, the way we think things need to be, wanting our ears tickled. That is the way of the world, and friendship with that way of thinking is hostility, enmity toward God. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of of God. We, we cannot serve both God and ourselves, period. If that is our way of thinking, we, we prove to not really be of, of, of Christ. Now, if, if any of us have something against someone else, if any of us live offended lives, and Paul talked about that earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, right? Please check yourself before throwing stones. Things are probably not what you perceive them to be. And the lifestyle of complaint is evidence that we are not in Christ, while a lifestyle of celebration is evidence that we are in Christ. And this goes for the name slinging across the political aisle, too. Many Christians today prove not to be of Christ, but to be of the world. If you only ever see what's wrong with the world instead of how God is working things together, evaluate your heart to see if you are in the faith. This is a salvation issue. This is the fruit of salvation. According to Paul and according to Christ and according to James, as we have seen today, a malcontent is the way of the world. Contentment is the way of Christ. Complaining is the way of the world. Celebration is the way of Christ. Isolation is the way of the world. Reconciliation is the way of Christ. Holding grudges is the way of the world. Forgiveness is the way of Christ. I'm talking about real forgiveness, not just, yeah, I forgive you, and then still dwell on it, right? No, we, we forgive like God forgives. And it is possible. God being omniscient, all-knowing, He can't like really forget anything. You realize that. If God could forget something, He wouldn't be all-knowing. Okay, so there would be a contradiction there. When Scripture says He does not remember our sin anymore, that word means He does not call it to mind. He knows about it. He remembers it. He chooses by His will never to call it to mind again. The same is true for us. We don't forget wrongs done against us. That's nearly impossible. Until our brain dies, I guess. But we can choose not to call it to mind. We can be like Christ in that way. And we either believe that God's grace is sufficient or we do not. And the way we live reveals which and reveals whether or not we are in Christ. As for me, I will celebrate God's goodness and His sovereignty and His providence no matter what suffering I endure in this life and no matter the circumstances of my life. I will find my refuge in God Almighty and I will love and serve unconditionally.